I entitled today's message, The Deep Glorious Plan. And I just want to start with a very simple concept. And it is this. Not only is Christianity a relationship with your Creator, with your Almighty God, but it is also a worldview. A worldview is the way you see reality. Everyone has a worldview. Christianity helps to define how you see the world. Why is there suffering that would be filtered through your Christian worldview? You would say, why is this occurring to me? What is going on here? What is my place in the world? Why am I here? These are all worldview questions. Christianity helps to sift those and to make sense of the world around you. But along the way, what we see in the Bible that we know to be true and then our experience sometimes clash because we are not quite living the way that God would have us live. So we're seeing a lot of things that don't quite gel together and we get frustrated, right? Anytime that there's dissonance, clashing, we get frustrated. And it's one of those things where you're going, I know God wants this of me and I'm not doing it. Or you know what, no matter how hard I try, I struggle with the exact same areas over and over and over again. Or I'm so tired of resisting temptation. Whatever it may be, there is great frustrations that come in. And we ask the big question, right? Is it all worth it? Is it worth all the struggle? Is it worth trying to adhere to Jesus Christ and to walk the life that he has laid out before us. And the fill in the blank is simply this. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. That is the message that we would receive from the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. The saints that have already died in the Lord. The ones that have already gone through. They understand. They've seen it on the other side. And they said, absolutely it's worth it. Every bit of the struggle, every bit of the pain, every bit of the confusion, all the persecution, bring it on. It's absolutely worth it. That Jesus said in the Bible that we can't even comprehend what it's going to be like. But we do know this. No matter what we have gone through here, it pales in comparison to what is awaiting us. This hope is what keeps us going every day. This hope is what recharges our batteries. This worldview of knowing that the best is yet to come helps us face the trials of today. But make no mistake, it's all worth it. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Now, as we go into any book in the Bible we, and we start any book, we always ask the question, why do I care? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What was the world situation? What's the whole point of it? These questions must be answered. And they don't need to be answered merely because of academic reasons. You don't need to do it so you're smart to say, oh, I know why we know it's Peter that wrote it. You know what? Take all that stuff, throw it out for a second. Here's why you need to know all those things. Because it changes how you read the book. Let's take, for example, I write a book. You know me as your pastor. You've listened to me talk. You know me on a personal basis. You've seen my family. I've told you stories about my kids. You know me somewhat. You know my groove as to how I talk. 
you know that any book that is written by me is going to have a certain flavor to it. You know that it will be highly erratic. Right? You know that anytime you're reading that book, it's going to be super serious and then out of nowhere, throw in some random joke. Right? Then you know it'll go back to being serious and then it will be challenging you and pushing you and pushing the envelope. You know it will be extreme. You know that it will be passionate. You know that it will be completely inappropriate. <laughs> you know that from me. So as you read through any book that I ever write, you would go, eh, that's how Lance would say it. I get that. And you kind of get the feel for it. If you don't know me, the book seems a little bit odd. If you know me, the book seems a little bit odd. But anyway, now, did I hear an amen? <laughs> How dare you? I don't get any amen on any of the preaching stuff until I talk about that. All right, that was fantastic. Now then, if another pastor wrote a book that is in this same area, grew up, maybe even of similar age, you would know that the theme, the groove of it, would be drastically different. You may know him as being far more serious, far more intellectual, and as you read it, you would kind of read it with his tone in mind, and it would change the sentences. If we don't know Peter, if we don't know who this author is, we can't read it right. So that's really why we care about all of this. So let's dive in and see a little bit about who wrote this book. Who do we think wrote the book? Now I can give you only my opinion, but my job is not to spoon feed you. My job is not to tell you what to believe. My job is to give you raw data and let you fight it out. So I'm going to tell you that my personal opinion and the opinion of the scholars that I tend to walk under believe that it was Simon Peter who wrote this book. Now, you can look on that and just say, well, it says it right there at the top. That should be easy enough. It is not. And I'm going to tell you why. But I believe that it was Simon Peter. Who's Simon Peter? Simon Peter is the disciple and apostle, likely the spokesperson of the 12 apostles. He's the loudmouth, the one that, remember, betrayed Christ. He was the fisherman, born into a fisherman family. His brother Andrew was the one that led him to the Lord. Peter is one of the only, if not the only, apostle that we know for a fact was married and that his wife went with him in ministry. Unfortunately, in tradition, he watched his wife be crucified under persecution. He was there when she died and he told her encouraging words as she passed away. When it came time for him to be killed for the Lord Jesus Christ, he too was to be crucified. And tradition says that he did not feel that he was worthy of such an honor. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. He died in Rome under the persecution of the emperor Nero around A.D. 68. Now, why are we so sure it's Peter? Because the way that it works with ancient documents, other people would sign super important people's names to their books. And it wasn't just trying to mislead people. As a matter of fact, if a Christian leader was going to write something and it was kind of in the tone of a big dog leader, they would sign the other person's name to it. 
There is a lot of documents written throughout church history, early church history, that has the names of all the apostles on it. You hear about the gospel of Thomas and you hear the gospel of this and the gospel of that. There was always famous names being signed to things. So why do we think that Simon Peter wrote this book? I'm going to tell you the reasons why, but let me shake your world for a moment. The first list that we have of New Testament books is called the Muratorian Canon. There was a gentleman in Rome, a high-level guy that found it. His name was Muratori, and so it's called the Muratorian Canon. It was written in 170 A.D. That's pretty old. First Peter is not on the list at all as a New Testament book. That list was written in Rome. Where did Peter minister and die? But in Rome. How in the world do you not include a book by the spokesman of the Twelve Apostles? Make it weirder. In the 300s, he's still not on the list. First Peter does not show up in the list of New Testament books until 400 A.D. Now, that automatically makes everything suspicious. Why in the world do we think that it's Peter that wrote this book if it's so silent in terms of lists? Well, let me go through some of this for you. If you take notes, you might want to jot some of these things down. Number one, it has his name on it and the apostolic designation. I told you that that's not for sure, but it's a great place to start. So first of all, he said, I'm Peter. I'm writing a book. There you go. Number two, there are incredible parallels in language between this book and the sermons of Peter in the book of Acts. Now, Peter didn't write Acts. Who wrote Acts? Luke. Luke wrote that book, and as he's tracking down and writing what Peter said, it's the same language, the same groove as this book. So you can immediately go, hold on a second. This is clearly the same guy talking. At least it appears so. Number three, this is the only book in the Bible that commands religious leaders in the church to be shepherds. That only happens one other time in all the New Testament. Where? When Jesus takes Peter aside and commands him to be a shepherd of his people. So you have a direct tie-in. That's a Peter thing. Number four, he claims to be an eyewitness of Christ's ministry. That narrows the pool. Yeah? All right. Number five, it was confirmed by all the church fathers immediately. And you said, I thought he wasn't on the list. He wasn't on the list of accepted books in the canon yet. But from AD 95, he was automatically referred to by the church fathers and said, you know, Peter wrote that letter and blah, 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 blah. And they would keep going on and talking about him. All the church fathers, it was unanimously accepted that first Peter is written by Simon Peter. It was not until recently that challenges were made ever to this book. Now, why would they have challenges? What is this recent challenge that everyone has brought up? Well, it's because of recent scholarship. 
So here's a couple of the reasons why people were challenged to say, I don't know if this is Peter or not. The most common one and the most overt is that it's beautiful, superb, excellent Greek. It is orchestrated in a fantastic way, in a very professional way. Remember how I told you that when John wrote Revelation and you have a real disciple writing a book, remember how I told you that he wrote, it was all messed up, he wrote in big crayon, right? He just had no idea what he was doing. He's not a linguistic scholar. He doesn't know how to write all that stuff, so he's just writing as a common guy. If you remember, in Scripture it said... That when the leaders looked at the apostles, they saw that they were ordinary, unschooled men. Do you remember that? How in the world does a Galilean fisherman suddenly be able to write this exquisite piece of literature? Everyone said there's no way. He didn't write it. Now, what's the answer? Well, it's possible he didn't write it. However, I do believe that he did. And I think that there's two reasons why. Number one... Just because they said that he was unschooled, you have to consider the context. Greeks said he was unschooled because he was trained in rabbinic tradition, not in their universities. So it doesn't mean he was illiterate. As a good Jewish boy, he was trained up in all sorts of education, but not in the ways that they were. So they didn't appreciate it. Also... By the time this letter is written, he's been in the ministry all over the world for 30 years. Don't you think you're probably a lot better at the Greek language when you've been communicating biblical thought in Greek for 30 years? Yeah, you're probably pretty sharp at that stuff. But I think the main reason and the main answer comes towards the end of the book when Peter signs off and he says, by the way, I wrote this book through Silas. Silvanus is what he calls him. That's the longer version of the name Silas. Who was Silas? He was more than a stenographer. He was a secretary. And Silas is the same guy that hung out with Paul. You remember Paul and Silas? They were in jail. They were singing worship songs overnight. Same guy. This brilliant man was the one that would write for Peter. So as Peter said, Silas, here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to say. We need to say that God has this amazing plan that he selected us, that he elected us, that he chose us before the beginning of time. And he begins to preach this amazing message. But Silas knew how to orchestrate it to create the beauty that Peter was conveying. That, I believe, is the reason why there's a mismatch there. Yeah, we could go through and argue all the different challenges, the persecution challenge. Oh, what Peter's talking about persecution, widespread persecution through the empire didn't happen until 100 AD, 40 years after he died. Couldn't be him. He was under Nero. Nero was one of the nastiest emperors to have ever lived. Nero's the guy who, what, sewed them up in animal skins so they would be eaten alive by wild dogs. Christians, he would cover them with tar and pitch and light them a fire just so they would burn alive at night. This is Nero. You think Peter can talk about persecution? Yeah. Guess who he died under? Nero. In AD 64, Rome burned under Nero's rule. The whole city was torched and everyone was mad. Who did Nero blame it on? The Christians. That is a historical fact. 
non-Christians wrote about that and said, man, those Christians didn't do that, but wow, he sure blamed it on them. Now, they didn't care, particularly, because they didn't care about Christians, but it's a historical fact that that's when persecution began to launch out. So, no matter what argument we can fire, and we could go through these all day long, the internal evidence is overwhelming that it was Peter, one of the inner three, one of the closest friends of Jesus in his physical ministry. All right? So, Peter wrote it. What else do we need to know? When was it written? Well, right before he died. He died in around A.D. 68. So it was written about A.D. 67. Where was it written from? He says in this book, I'm writing from Babylon. Was he really in Babylon? No, he was not. But during persecution, you would use code words. And the code words in the Christian religion was that Babylon was the name for Rome. So he wrote it from Rome where he was going to die. Who was it written to? Believers, both Jew and non-Jew. You're going to see references to both of them. He's going to talk and do little alliterations and uh, um, suggestions towards the Jewish people. And then he'll talk a lot about people that were non-Jewish. So it's a mixture. It's the mixed up church of that time, the early church. They've been scattered all throughout the world because of persecution and because of God's command. Why was it written? Because you have a pastor who's really concerned about his kids. That's it. So he wrote out and he said, you know what? Persecution's going to get worse. I need you to understand who you are in Jesus. Because when they start messing with your head and you've got all this heat coming at you, I need you to know what you believe. I need you to know inside and out. Who is God? Who am I? What's happening here? And so he makes this beautiful letter to his people to encourage them. And I would hope that this morning you are encouraged as well. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to do 12 verses today. Um, but I'm just going to read the first two, and then we'll pray for the word, all right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's page 857, and the Bible's handed to you if you need to find it that way. It begins like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood, grace and yours be in abundance. I pray that that would be the case with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you pour out and allow us to understand your abundant grace upon us, that, Father, we would leave here with a peace in our spirit, as we adhere to you in faith, make us different. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's see what we have. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Now, Peter, he was born Simeon, named Simon, and then what? Jesus changed his name and named him in Aramaic, what? Cephas, which in Greek is... Petros, or Peter, it means rock. So Jesus changed his name. This is a very different man than the man who was a fisherman before Jesus showed up. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, that word elect is very special. 
It means that Christians that he's writing to were selected out, chosen by God specifically. This idea that I now have a whole set of options and I select this. That is the word for elect. And every time the word elect or election is used in the Bible, it is used as an encouragement that you are personal to God. Many of us wrestle in our lives because we cannot see Jesus or we cannot talk to Jesus. He doesn't talk back, I should say. That we do not feel that God is personal to us. We feel like maybe he created the world and then disappeared. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is not just the creator of the world. He is the sustainer of the world. He is not just the sustainer of the world, but he is the king of the world and the father of all living things. Therefore... He is very personal. Everything that you're about to hear today is that God is personal and he's interested in you. So sure enough, we were chosen. Now there's a very interesting play on words that just occurred because Jews just got highly irritated. Why? Because he just used the phrase that can be translated the chosen people. Whoops. The Jews go, wait a second, we're the chosen people. What are you talking about? Wait, you're using that for Gentiles? No, you don't use that term. That's our term. We're the chosen people. And Peter would have responded, ah, but we were adopted into your family. Sorry about that. We're chosen people too. We were selected out by God and we are his cherished. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world. What does that mean? Proikos is the Greek word. It means foreigners just passing through, waiting to get home. Is that what Christians are? Yeah. And that's why we don't sweat it as much here. If this was your final destination, you need to build a monument. If you're merely just flying through this life, why in the world would you build a monument? Why wouldn't you just wait till you get home? You understand when you're coming back through, you're, you're coming back from, right, L.A., and you're heading home. You've gone on a big trip there. You can't wait to get home. And as you get waiting home, you don't go, oh, my gosh, we're in Fresno. Everyone stop. <laughs> you only stop if you have to go to the bathroom, right? All right, fantastic. You just go home. You're just passing through. And yet so many of us have created a kingdom here and we don't want to go anywhere, but we weren't built for here. We're built for somewhere else to the strangers in the world. Those that are scattered. Now in this context, it literally just means scattered as a farmer would scatter seed as a flower Or the leaves would be scattered by the wind. But if you put a the in the Greek language before it, the definite article, and it says the scattered, we irritate the Jews again. Why? The diaspora. The diaspora is the name of Jews when they're in exile. If they're ever kicked out of their country, that's their term. You don't use their term. They're going, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Now you're using our term again. Stop messing with us. That's on purpose. 
Peter is weaving these words backwards and forwards and saying, hold on, we're in the same family. I just need you to remember that. All right. They are scattered throughout, and he names these regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all areas in modern-day Turkey. You want to look on a map? It's right next to Greece. Got it? It's on the right-hand side. Who have been chosen, that word means specifically chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right, this is a word that causes a lot of difficulty. Foreknowledge, in a biblical sense, does not mean merely observed beforehand. Because here's what a lot of people end up mistaking. They go, oh, well, I'm a Christian because God looked into the future, saw that I would choose him, then orchestrated it in such a way that puts you completely in charge of that. That is not what the word means. Now, we don't know everything that it means, but we know it's not that. Largely, what it means in a biblical sense is I have an idea and I'm going to carry out my plan for knowledge. I know what I'm going to do. That's actually what it means. So, for example, before the world was created, God knew he was going to create a world. He had foreknowledge and made it happen. We need to keep that in mind that over and over you see that your life is not an accident. You see that your life is purposeful. You see that your life matters. And that God is intimately involved. No matter what you hear today, I want that to ring out. Because God has an amazing plan for your life. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What did you just hear? The Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Peter, right off the bat, locks it in and says, by the way, the whole fact that you're saved at all, the whole fact that you're a Christian, the whole fact that you're a child of God, you do realize that involves all the guys, right? That the Father, He commands these things out, and He said, I will have my children. The Holy Spirit and the Son go, we're on it, let's go. They fire out, the Son provides the way, the Holy Spirit walks us through. As a matter of fact, in the world right now today, the most active member of the Trinity in a tangible fashion for us is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that convicts us of sin. He's the one that draws us to God. He's the one that shapes us into the image of Jesus. He's the one that empowers us to do the things we do. He's the one that helps us when we pray. And the Holy Spirit is called the one that walks alongside. So at all times, God in the person of the Holy Spirit is working on you even while you sleep. Is that personal? Oh, indeed it is. Very personal. Involved in your lives, knowing what your dreams are, maneuvering things to adjust it so that you become what he designed. That's how personal God is. Now it says that all these things happen for the obedience to Jesus and by the sprinkling of his blood. You see that phrase? Sprinkling of his blood is a very Old Testament concept. To us, it sounds gross. If you are not familiar with the Bible, that just sounds weird. Why is someone flicking blood on you? Now, in the Old Testament, it was only used in three instances. Literally, the flicking of blood. That's what it means. So you have a little bowl. Hey, I got my little bowl of blood. Everybody's got one, right? You take something, you stir it around, you go, flick, 
and you flick it at somebody. They're like, oh, you got blood all over me. What are you doing? That was special in only three circumstances. I believe all three circumstances tie in to the meaning here. Number one, it was used in the cleansing of lepers. Y'all remember in the old school that if you had leprosy, you were an outcast of society. Everybody hated you. They're like, gross. I don't even want to be around you. They didn't know how it worked. It was highly contagious. And they just said, ew. And they put you away as an outcast. But what if you didn't really have leprosy? Or what if God healed you? You had to go to the temple priests, show yourself to them. They did a little test. And they went, oh, you're all good. They would flick you with blood. That's part of the ritual of going, you're all good. Get back in society. Are Christians cleansed? Yes, they are. We're cleansed of our sin. We were an outcast from God, but now we have been brought near and we have been verified as being completely legitimately clean. The second indicator, the second time that blood was used in the Old Testament was when they selected the priests and the Levites. Remember Aaron and his little crew? Well, when they brought them up, they said, all right, everybody, these guys are going to be your priests. They're going to be working at the church. They're going to be helping you out. They went flick, flick, and they flicked them with blood. They're like, hey, right? They flicked them with blood. Why? To show that they were set apart for a specific reason. Are Christians set apart for a specific reason? Yes. And they're to communicate God to the people. So once again, we have another tracking. Number three, the third time it was ever used in the Old Testament was when Moses brought the whole nation of Israel before him. And he said, we need to obey God. We're all out of line. We're completely screwing up. We need to know this is what God says. We're doing exactly what he says, right? All right, good. As a commitment, I'm going to flick you. Let me flick everybody. About obedience. Are Christians saved that we might be obedient? Yeah. So all three matter here. By the sprinkling of his blood. And then he does the standard little way of greeting people, a little twist on it because he's a Christian. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Interesting, he says grace. He used that word ten times in this book. Grace is a big deal to Peter. Why? I don't know. You remember how he lived? None of the other disciples were called Satan by Jesus. Remember that? None of the other ones betrayed him right to his face, right? And yet he becomes the foremost apostle and the leader of the church. How is that possible? Oh, I don't know. Grace. Right? So he's like, hey, I'm all into grace. Let's talk about grace today. He's a walking example of grace. And so he does this greeting. He says, by the way, God has abundant grace for you. May you have the peace, the shalom that it brings. And so he greets. Let's read the piece of the letter. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's very specific. For in his great mercy, meaning in his kindness, he has given us new birth. What does it mean to be born again? We have no idea. However, we know that whatever happens when you become a Christian, you being cleansed of all your sin is so radical that we have no other way to describe it but to say, man, it's like you're a brand new person. That's what we know. He, in his great kindness and mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Who's the living hope? Well, Jesus. As long as Jesus is living, we're peaceful. 
through the resurrection, Jesus coming back from the dead, because if he's alive, we can be alive. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is our inheritance? It's not just heaven. It's not just new life. What is it? It's him. Our inheritance is God. That we would be with him personally forever. And he is not going to perish. He's not going to spoil. He's not going to fade. You don't have to worry about inflation. It's all good. All of this is kept in heaven for you who through faith, that's the man part of it, you cling to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. You're my only deliverer. I'm sorry for what I've done. I have to have you. That's your part. Through faith, you hang on to Jesus, are shielded by God's power. That's a weak translation. Why? Because it's an active, passive word in Greek. What does that mean? It means, first of all, it's active continually. You are continually being shielded. It's a military word. It means you're guarded by soldiers. You are being shielded at all times, but the word is also passive. Why is that important? Because it means you're not doing the guarding. You don't have to be alert like that. Who's doing the guarding? God, and he's always alert. You are being shielded at all times. Does that sound personal? Better believe it sounds personal. God's all over you and making sure that you're safe. We are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do y'all realize that if you're a Christian, you've been saved, are being saved, and will be saved? What does that mean? It means you were saved when you trusted in Jesus and you were cleansed of your sin. You are being saved right now from the dangers that lurk about. And you will be ultimately saved from this world and from the wrath of God when Jesus returns. Therefore, salvation is past, present, future. Yeah? All right, let's keep moving. In all of this, in all the stuff that God has done personally for you, you greatly rejoice. I'm not seeing a lot of that. You greatly rejoice. Yeah. Do you ever just walk through your life? And maybe you do, but your face just doesn't know. Maybe you do walk through life and you go, man, I'm thankful. You ever do that? I mean, you're just in the store, right? You're walking around. And you're thinking, man, God does so much for me. And you have this incredible gratitude that erupts in your heart. That's what he's talking about. You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Ooh, that means it's limited. Is your suffering limited? Yeah, God's in control. It's not out of control. For a little while you may have had, meaning if need be, to suffer grief. What's grief? In Greek it means heaviness, pain, sorrow. Maybe you've had horrible times for whatever reason in all kinds of trials. That means multicolored trials, multifaceted trials. You go, well, yeah, I get it. There's a lot of ways to hurt. The reason why that's important is it's the exact same phrase he will use for the word grace. However multifaceted your trials are, there's a corresponding grace 
that goes along with it. These trials have come so that your faith, your belief and commitment to God of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why do we have testing? Why do we have temptation? Why do we have struggle? Because this life is largely a testing unit. Do not be surprised if you are tested. Why? Because we are surrounded by people watching us. And do you know if you're solid? You don't know if you're solid unless horrible stuff has happened to you. Because it's never been tested. Oh, you can believe all kinds of stuff about yourself. But unless it's been pushed to the wall, you don't know. You could be playing a game. You could be thinking stuff that's not true. God said, I don't want you that insecure. You want to see what you're like? Watch this. And the heat rises up, burns away so much of it. Now he said, like being refined in a fire with gold. Imagine this. Huge nugget of gold found. Everyone just goes, dang, that's a big nugget. Literally, this big, massive nugget is found. Everyone's just going, wow, that's got to be a million, billion dollars, right? And the little nugget's like, that's right. I'm a big nugget. Take it to the guy. Go, how much is this worth? He says, hold on a second. He melts it down and burns out all the impurities, and it comes out to about that big. Everyone laughs at the nugget. Ah, you used to be huge. Now you're little. You're a weenie. And he's like, oh, man, that's embarrassing. You mean that, that, that's, that's, that's my gold? And then the guy can look at him and go, yeah, but you're pure. Don't you understand that whether you're this big or you're this big, it's the same amount of pure gold. I just burned out all the junk. Do you want to walk through life posturing, right? Keeping up all the looks, the masks. Oh, look how big I am as a Christian. Check me out. Everybody wants to be me, right? But when testing gets done with you, you look about that big. That's humiliating, but I would suggest to you that it's the same value. But you don't have to carry around all the extra garbage. I think we want to be sifted. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Is that true? Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's the second big old joy reference. You got a big old joy in your life? For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you love Jesus? I get you can't see him. I know that makes it weird. But there's a lot of people you love that you can't see anymore. Your mom passed away. Did you stop loving her? Of course you didn't. Her active presence in your life was not what dictated your love. You still love her. Concerning this salvation, this incredible stuff that God does by rescuing us, the prophets in the Old Testament, the guys who wrote about this stuff, 
They spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Well, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. In other words, even while they're writing scripture, they're going, I don't get it. I don't get it. So how's this going to work? How's it going to work? They didn't know. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but a future generation, you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. What do we do with this? Do you realize that angels have absolutely no idea what's going on in your life? They've never experienced that. They've never been saved. Isn't that weird? They've never known forgiveness. Spin the story back in your head. Big rebellion. War. No more switching sides. All done. Bad guys? Good guys. No forgiveness. So here we have all these angels who are cooler than us, could do more things than us, are stronger than us, can see the living God in all his glory. And they look at us and go, wow, I don't know what that's like. He did what? He said, I'll pay for it. Whoa. You must be pretty special. You see, we made our choice. That's all we got. You, however, have been rescued. Why would you do that? He loves you that much, huh? Fascinating. What are you going to do with that love? And they watch. They're watching you. They're watching me to see what we would do with the grace given us. And when we who have not seen God give our lives to him, they erupt in praise and go, wow, God is amazing. No matter how hard it is, it's all worth it. And God isn't done with you. He's still loving you, working with you, and building into you. Today is a good day if you're with Jesus. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for letting us sit at your feet and learning. Thank you, Jesus, for giving of yourself that we might be rescued. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for walking alongside us and empowering us to withstand the tests, the trials, the temptations. Heavenly Father, thank you for initiating with your incredible, overwhelming love that we stand before you in hopes that we might bring you glory and make you look good. In Jesus' name, amen.